Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and registered art therapist. And I'm Catherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Our mission on Am I a Bad Therapist is to normalize and humanize our existence as therapists. You can help us spread this message by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you are right now, whether that's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you know the drill. You can also help us by sharing Am I a Bad Therapist with your network, whether it's on social media, your stories, or just between colleagues. Every listener helps us make a difference in this field, and we'll always reshare if you tag us. If you're listening to the podcast, make sure to check out our pretty faces on our YouTube channel. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to head over to our podcast and leave a review. You can find all of our links in the notes below. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Hey, Catherine, what do you think is one of the most challenging topics to talk about in the therapy room? I'm going to give a guess at money and cancellation fees. Valid, but that's not what I was thinking. Try again. <laughs> okay, try again. Um, what if... Uh, like oh, if I no know. one wants to talk about it. I know. Attraction. The level of intimacy therapy requires. Yes, that's what I was thinking, and nice. it's what we're going to be hearing about today from our guest, John. He's going to be sharing with us about how it feels and how we navigate and address when clients experience attraction towards us as therapists, how we navigate that and just how it feels because it's a sticky one. Yeah, that has absolutely happened to me. Um, and I would be, I would be shocked if it hasn't for any of us practicing for several years, I'd, I'd be shocked if it hasn't happened to you yet at all. Um, it's so, it's so common, but you're right. We don't, we don't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. Again, it's, it's very tricky to talk about, but hopefully our conversation today can help normalize it a little bit more, destigmatize it and talk about it because it does happen. I share a little bit, you know, when we talked to John about how I used to work in the community in like a city and I was going into homes and I had this happen quite a few times and it was very uncomfortable for me how you navigate holding a therapeutic alliance, setting boundaries navigating your own safety and feelings of comfort, navigating how supervisors respond to it. And again, just Mm -hmm. how you work with the client. So it's going to be a good conversation. And again, hopefully we can just normalize this a little bit more. Yeah, there's so much to talk about with this. Looking forward to it. And just a reminder uh, for everyone listening that these episodes are for entertainment purposes only. They are not a substitute for individual therapy or for consultation or ethical guidance. 
All right, this is episode number seven of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Hey, John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we get into why you're a bad therapist, or may or may not be a bad therapist, tell us a little bit about yourself, your practice, your your work in the mental health field. Sure. I started working in mental health um, probably eight years ago. Um, I, I was actually a bachelor's level clinician at a community health mental health agency. And I did a lot of interesting work when I uh, was there. It was part case management, part uh, eh, clinician slash therapist. Um, really, it was I was like a jack of all trades. And so I had to go into the community and meet with my clients there. Um, sometimes I was in their homes. Sometimes we, I would take them to doctor's appointments. Sometimes I'd take them grocery store, um, grocery shopping. And so I did a lot of different things. But uh, but by nature of the, the job itself, we had also had a lot of therapeutic conversations because you can't um, help but av- you can't avoid that. I mean, if you're sitting in a doctor's office for two or three hours, you're going to talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that that was kind of my formative uh, experience uh, in mental health. But now I'm I just do therapy. I've been doing it for about two years. I work at a group practice and and I love it. I do couples and um, individual therapy. What an amazing start in the mental health field. So that really gave you your first taste, huh? Yeah, it did. And you know what? It was the best training I got because I started grad school after working there for a few years. And by the time I was in grad school, uh, grad school felt easy because I'd already seen a lot of things just through my job. No, just a a sidebar before we get into your situation. I can absolutely relate to that. I actually went to grad school right out of undergrad and the, my classmates, my cohort members who went and worked either in a master's degree or in a bachelor's level and then went back to get their doctorate or their degrees, they came in with so much, like, like they had, they, they had a really good foundation and I was just trying to get my footwork down. So that was, that's a really great experience. Thanks for sharing that. Well, so tell us, what is the story that you would like to tell us today of why you felt like you were a bad therapist? Oh, well, here goes. So back in the day when I was doing this community mental health work, I had, I would often have clients who I could tell they were attracted to me. They had a crush on me. And, you know, it's very easy to, to not reject, but turn down the, the, I don't know, flirtations of a 60-year-old woman. Because <laughs> I had a lot of um, senior citizen clients. The age range that I worked with was 18 to 70, I think was the oldest person. Um, but, you know, sometimes I would get younger clients who, you know, in their 20s uh, who would flirt with me. <laughs> and I felt very uncomfortable when those things would happen. Because the work I was doing, again, it wasn't in a therapist's office. It was in the community. Sometimes this was in my car. We're going to an appointment or we're sitting at uh, McDonald's or Starbucks kind of just, you know, talking um, about how things are going with uh, their clinical or their their, their treatment. And then they would just flirt. <laughs> and I would immediately, well, I think I played it off. <laughs> um, you know, I kept it professional, but I always felt awkward and weird about it. And I would go to my clinical supervisor, like, can I, I just feel really strange. <laughs> this just happened. How do I deal with this? How do I 
um, how do I manage it? And I did not want to continue working with them. <laughs> and so my, well, th th that's the situation. Dealing with uh, clients who are attracted to me as a clinician and how, I don't know, brought up all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, have a, I have a follow question. How sure. did they flirt with you? <laughs> like, oh what did gosh. they do? What did they oh say? Oh my gosh. Sometimes they would, um, you know, they would like get handy or like they'd put their hand up. Right. Yeah. You, you, you know, your, your eyebrows, eyebrows are raising. My eyebrows went up for yeah. anyone listening. Your eyebrows are raising. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so uncomfortable. Now, most of my coworkers and colleagues are women and I'm, I'm a guy. And, but it's just, so I'm not like, I, I know my coworkers were used to this kind of stuff. So they had more experience managed, navigating it. But for me, I was like, oh my gosh, this person is hitting on me right now. <laughs> So sometimes it was verbal. Sometimes it was just, they were a little bit more playful physically. Like they would just, I don't know, like touch me on the shoulder or like mm -hmm. on my hand or, or on my arm um, as we're sitting at the table. I'm like, mm, immediately uncomfortable. Uh, so, I mean, to give you an idea, <laughs> that that's what would happen. Oh, absolutely. And I, another sidebar story. I remember mm -hmm. like being out in a community with them as a male female duo, perhaps around mm -hmm. the same ages. I wonder, oh, were there a lot of oh assumptions about yes. your, your client uh, and you as a couple? That is, that happened more than that, several occasions where that would happen. And I, of course, my mind doesn't go there. I'm not thinking about that, but my clients would say, Oh, like they're going to think we're a couple. And again, feeling awkward. How do I respond to this? And I would try to shut it down, like, eh, yeah, or just ignore it, <laughs> because yeah. it's it's. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to see be seen in that way. I don't want them thinking about me in that way. I obviously I don't have any control over that, but it just put me in a very strange position. Yeah. Well, and I feel like too, the community mental health, like really adds to it. Um, I was sharing mm -hmm. earlier with you guys before we started recording, I started my career in community mental health. So I was going into homes, schools, sometimes mm -hmm. outside, like wherever we could meet. Mm -hmm. um, and it adds that extra level where it's very confusing of how to do it. Because even like when I would go into people's homes, you know, I was working mm -hmm. in a city. So you know, you have a lot of close neighbors. They'd be like, oh, who are you here to see? What's going on? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? I see you here once a week kind of thing. And you're like, I don't like, I'm just here. Nice to see you, you know, because you can't break HIPAA at the same time. So it's like a double whammy. And then I feel like it also, in my opinion, adds to like a variable of that therapeutic relationship, right? Because when you, someone comes mm -hmm. into your office, I think for myself, at least it feels easier to keep boundaries and talk about relationships mm -hmm. and all of that. But when you're in someone's home or they're in your mm -hmm. car, it changes the relationship a hundred percent in my yes. opinion. So I think it just adds that extra piece of it being very complicated. Yes, I definitely, that was the case. I mean, like I said, I would take people to doctor's appointments. I was mm -hmm. privy to their medical history. I would take people grocery shopping. I helped some of my clients, uh, learn how to budget their money. <laughs> so we would talk about money. So every aspect of their life, they would share with me and I was privy to. And so it made that, um, you know, we, those boundaries of, uh, you know, clinician, uh, client, they had to be clear. And I had to regularly talk to my clients about those things. Like, hey, I know that we're sitting here at a McDonald's talking about how your treatment's going, but we're not friends. <laughs> because they would start to develop closeness like they would feel close to me i mean some of these clients i worked with them for three years 
And so I became privy to pretty much every aspect of their life. Now, when they start talking about their sex lives, I'm like, I don't want to hear that. I mean, I didn't say that, but <laughs> if it was clinically appropriate, then sure, you know, let them talk about it. But I, I don't know, just ugh, boundaries. <laughs> So the situation we're describing is your work as a bachelor's level clinician going yes. out into the community and helping the clients. Mm. Um, I'm curious, does, did this did, did clients continue to flirt with you? Did that happen in the therapy room over the past couple of years as you being a therapist too? Uh, you know what? As a therapist, it's actually much easier ah. <laughs> to navigate all of this um, because I have, I mean, I've only, it's only ever happened maybe once since I started just solely doing therapy. Um, and so it's, it's way easier. I think because I was so involved in a part of my clients' lives when I was at that mental health agency, it just blurred the lines. And so they Easy. felt more free and com- comfortable to kind of go there. And so, I don't know, if, if here in, um, there, as a therapist now, if I sense that a client is attracted to me, I don't know. I mean, we might have a conversation about it. We, or I might just ignore it, but if it becomes very clear, it's starting to get in the way of our work together. I mean, I would bring it up. I would address it, Yeah, but I, I would still feel weird going there because <laughs> it's such a weird topic. Mm-hmm. It is, but I'm so glad that you are bringing it to the podcast because this is our goal, right? Of what we're trying to do. We're trying to help destigmatize and just normalize these experiences mm-hmm. that we face because we say it all the time, like we are humans. Yes, we're therapists mm-hmm. and the work we do is important, but we make mistakes. We get put into uncomfortable situations and nobody really talks about it. So truly thank you for talking about this topic that's really hard to talk about, but you are not alone. I'm so sure that so many listeners will be so happy that you're willing to talk about this with us and hopefully again just open those doors for other people to talk about it so we can feel mm-hmm. more comfortable mm-hmm. with how we handle it and how we deal with it well yeah you're very welcome because i definitely did not get this kind of like education when i was in school <laughs> yeah. so i figure we should talk about it because mm-hmm. this stuff happens all the time <laughs> it does it does the, i say this all the time we use our humanness in the in our work right and so mm-hmm. we show up as authentic humans in the therapy room and you know i don't think there's anything i want to be clear that there's nothing wrong with feeling mm-hmm. attracted to your therapist and it does make us uncomfortable at times but that's part of what we do and we need to work through that and, and use mm-hmm. that information um and i love how you're able to now clinically bring that into the clinical room i've done it multiple times where you know kind of calling out the attraction or or or, or bringing to attention the playfulness or the I haven't really experienced extra touches, but, uh, you know, calling that out yeah. and using that clinically, I think is so important and, and uh, personally has led to deeper therapeutic work with some of my clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, definitely the, the, the touches part does not happen. Is it? <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm trying to picture like how that would yeah. look and I'm like, Ooh, like yeah, that would be no, very clear if that were happening. Yes. Nobody is touching me. They are on the other side or of the room on the couch and I'm on my side. <laughs> You know what? Interesting. Mm-hmm. I think about this now. Mm-hmm. I did have a playful touch once. Oh, okay. It was with a male client and he playfully, I had my legs crossed. He was sitting across oh. from me and he playfully kicked my shoe. So that's oh. something, right? Yeah, that is. Yeah. 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 Mm. It's like, hmm, if that happened to me, I'd be like, I think this person is flirting with me. 
<laughs> I think, I mean, it was, yeah, I, without getting into the case, it was a much broader context, but, oh, okay, but yes. Okay. Anyway, I think that this, I, I, I also appreciate that you are a male talking about, yeah. uh, talking about females or other men flirting with you in the clinical relationship. I, I mean, it happens, I would say it happens to females as well. Absolutely. If not more so. And now for a quick ad break. Fun fact, Ellie and I actually met on the Teletherapist Network. That we did. And if you'd like to join like-minded therapists like us in a private network away from the distractions of social media, just visit teletherapistnetwork.com. There is so much going on inside the network. There's clinical consultation groups, like the one I host, Creativity in the Clinical Room. There's media requests, templates, masterclasses, and more. And we would love for you to join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Finding artwork that is appropriate for the therapy room while also being aesthetically pleasing can be such a challenge. Well, that is why I created the Joy of Therapy Shop. It is full of mental health art prints, accessories, and more. You can find items ranging from a bohemian vibe to funny quotes to lighten the mood. My favorite right now are the holographic stickers. Me too. As a Bad Therapist listener, you can get your first digital download of an individual print for just 25 cents using the code BADTHERAPIST. Go to joyoftherapy.com to find my Etsy store and Instagram account. And let's get back into it. Well, I think that brings up the great point and like the question of like, what does go through your head when this is happening? Like I can speak for myself when this has happened. I feel like I get pulled out of being present, unfortunately, because I'm not Mm -hmm. necessarily being present and listening to everything else. I'm like in my head, like, oh, was it this? Was it that? What do I say? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And it's like these racing thoughts. And I feel like, again, personally, it feels like it pulls me out of the session a bit because I'm just trying to go through my thoughts. So what comes to mind for you? What's that dialogue like in your mind? (laughs) What are you asking yourself? It's like, oh my gosh, is this happening right now? <laughs> that that's probably the first thought I'm like, oh my gosh, I think this is happening. I think they are seriously crushing on me because they're very you know, it just I'm analyzing the situation. And you're right, um, Ali, I did it did pull me out of the moment. And after that initial shock of this just happened, I think my mind immediately went to um <laughs> <laughs> not uh, liability, but you know, like the, the legalities of things. I'm like, I don't want to be in this situation. This is so uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to be accused of anything. I don't want like, I don't, that, that's where my mind goes. Um, mm-hmm. I, at the agency, they, they called it CYA, cover your ass. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did not want to be put in that kind of situation because it, that's just horrible of, I don't, anyway, um, th- that's probably next where my mind went after the initial um, shock. And then after that, I probably went to, okay, I need to talk to somebody about this. How do I deal with this? How do I even talk about this with someone? Um, Cause I'm like, okay, th- this person is flirting with me. I, what, what do, like, do I need to keep working with them <laughs> long-term? Um, because I feel uncomfortable. And if, you know, th- I could see this happening again where they're flirting or making comments or, um, you know, whatnot. Um, and so I, I, I think that's probably where my mind went next problem solving mode. How do I deal with the situation and, or how do I get out of it <laughs> um, when it comes up again in the future? It sounds like you wanted to get out. Yeah, totally. 
<laughs> did your supervisors allow that or did they push you to keep working with the clients? You know what? Um, I thankfully had great supervisors and I was also part of a team. And so it was a team of us clinicians. Um, it was my team had um, bachelor, bachelor's level and master's level clinicians. And so, you know, w once I voiced my concerns, um, my supervisor, we, we just kind of talked it through and made a plan. You know, I didn't have to be the person meeting with this client <laughs> who had a crush on me because um, one thing I appreciate about my supervisor is that she wanted to make sure that I felt comfortable, that I wasn't putting myself in a compromise, not even a compromise, but just an uncomfortable position, um, which I really, really liked. <laughs> that really helped. And that put me more at ease. And sometimes um, other, my coworkers could not meet with, with the client. Um, and so in those situations, I, I would, I could meet with the client, but maybe I would meet with them in the office <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of in um, the in their home. And if I had to meet with them in the community, then meet with them in a more public space like a McDonald's or a coffee shop, someplace where, you know, it's, I would feel more comfortable. I think that that was a big part of what she told me. It's like, I want to make sure you're comfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, if it got really bad, it's, you know, maybe I could, the, the client could meet me at th that public location and I would, meet them there separately that way they're not driving in my car mm -hmm. so that helps mm -hmm. it too yeah i'm gonna it's say I'm boundaries a, yeah yeah great boundaries that's awesome i was gonna say i'm a little envious i'm not gonna lie i was so i said earlier um i was working um fresh out of grad school as a therapist mm -hmm. in the community and i was going into homes and when you work in agencies they often mm -hmm. say you have to work with everybody no matter the, yes. the age the diagnosis yes. things like that and i was i had a few older male clients who I was going into their homes, mm -hmm. things got very uncomfortable where they were mm -hmm. making advances towards me. And I was in their homes. And I went back to supervision fresh out of grad school. Like literally I don't have a clue mm. in the world what's going on. I said I was uncomfortable. And at that time, my supervisor was like, well, set the boundary and go back. And I was like, that feels oh, really bad, <laughs> really bad. Yeah. So I'm really happy that your supervisor at least kind of validated, not that they didn't validate me, and like, I understand we do have to push through challenges as therapists. Mm -hmm. um, but when your safety is at, con like at concern or again, yeah. like these uncomfortable situations, I always felt like, I don't think that I should be going back necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the agency or the, the attitude, the, what is it? The, not systematic, but institutional mindset or mm -hmm. the attitude makes a big difference. Because I faced a similar situation in a different agency, um, and it was not as supportive. And I didn't have as many um, – uh, well, I didn't have coworkers. I had a, it was just me <laughs> working there, and I, you know, I had one manager. And so I, I had to deal with the situation. <laughs> and you know, that, it, was, it was hard th then, too. And I made me, it made me wish that – well, it made me miss the agency I had previously left behind. <laughs> Um, because of the the difference in support and the difference in attitude between agencies. Yeah, Absolutely. that makes such a difference. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about having the situations, right? How we're feeling, mm -hmm. all of that. I'm curious, do you have any examples of how you set boundaries with people? Like if you did continue to work with them um, mm -hmm. or how you handled it, like 
was it like the first time you notice this, you address it? Or do you subtly like, do you have a three strikes kind of thing that then you talk about it? What was like your actual responses, if you can think of them? Sure. Uh, let's see. I think the first time it ever happened, I didn't address it right away because I didn't know how to, or I wasn't sure how to. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I consulted with my supervisor, kind of talked it through. And then when it happened the next time, I, I was better prepared. Um, I talked about boundaries. Like, hey, I get the feeling that, I don't know, this feels a little too much like flirting. <laughs> um, this doesn't make me, I feel uncomfortable with this. I want you to stop. <laughs> um, and, you know, those kind of conversations. <laughs> uh, and most clients were respectful and are apologetic. Uh, and so they definitely got the signal. Um, so that, that kind of, that helped. Uh, also, I think after the first uh, in- initial incident, um, I-, I got better at handling it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just got better of addressing those situations when they came up. Mm-hmm. I think earlier before we were recording, I, or maybe it was when we were recording, um, I-, I-, I told you guys about how I had a client tell- call me his best friend mm-hmm. just because we had been working for so long together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been so involved in his life and I had to tell him, um, hey, I know that you you trust me, you and you see me a lot. And just to give you an idea, some of these clients I was seeing two to three times a week, and I was spending as little as fifteen minutes to as many as three or four hours with them per session, depending on whatever I was doing with them. And so, just to give you an idea of how much they opened up to me and how much I became part of their lives, and my coworkers, it was the same thing for them. And so when my client said, hey, you know, you're my best friend, by then I was able to say, hey, you know what? I- I'm your case manager. I- I'm not your best friend. I know you you, you trust me. Um, I know I'm part of your life. But what I'm doing is this is my job. And so, you know, he, that made him sad. <laughs> um, but he, he got over it. It was okay. Like he understood. And I had to have that conversation again with him multiple times. <laughs> and you know, that that's with a male client, but I, I'd have those conversations with some of my female clients too. Mm-hmm. And some ones that became attracted to me or, you know, I, I felt like they, they were. And so you know, they didn't always like that. <laughs> they got defensive and said, no, 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 no. Why? And what I appreciated was that my supervisor allowed me to use her as a scapegoat <laughs> in the sense of like, just, just say it's like policy or protocol and like, whatever. And I'm like, perfect. I will use that as an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, mo- most of the times, um, I, I didn't have to use that excuse. It was enough to just say, Hey, like this, this is not appropriate. <laughs> Knock it off. Yeah. Two things really stand out to me. First is that as a bachelor's level clinician, you were put into some pretty tricky situations yes. that are even difficult to manage or to navigate as a, you know masters or doctoral level trained clinicians. Mm-hmm. So you were really you know it, in my perspective thrown in the deep end into how to handle you know rapport building and managing ruptures and setting mm-hmm. interpersonal boundaries while like out in public and driving in cars and I can really really respect the fact that you were doing this all with a bachelor's level education without the advanced training that you now have mm-hmm. yeah I, in, in hindsight I tell people 
one year of it's a little bit like dog years one year of working at a community mental health agency is the equivalent of two to three I years say the of, same thing of individual or gr- group practice yes a hundred percent i agree with you <laughs> yeah and i mean at this point i've eight years into being a clinician i have literally seen hundreds of clients done thousands of hours of um you know just that direct service kind of work and I don't know, nothing really, not, I don't say nothing phases me, but it does, nothing shocks me anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the second thing that stood out to me was something you said earlier, which was that your female colleagues or peers knew how to handle these situations because they've mm-hmm. been in them so often. And I think that mm-hmm. that really does highlight the difference of genders in the clinical yes, role. I agree. And I mean, just in our society, right? Yeah women get hit on all the time, (laughs) walk down the street, they get hit on. And I had never been put in that position as a straight man. (laughs) And here I was uh, at my job and I did not know how to handle that (laughs) initially. I didn't know how to handle it. (laughs) And it was like, oh my gosh, this is what women go through on a daily basis. (laughs) And it just flipped the, you know, the, the roles, the the dynamics for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder for you now, having gone through this kind of tri- trial by fire experience mm-hmm. as a bachelor's level clinician, and you said after the first instance, you felt more comfortable handling it. So it sounds like experience navigating the situations helped, mm-hmm. but do going to graduate school then add any other tools to your toolbox or change how you approach how this shows up in the therapy room? Or is it really that experiences that, that really shaped how you manage it? You know, I had a great grad program, but it was definitely the experiences <laughs> that prepared me more for the work. Because like you said, trial by fire. <laughs> I, I faced so many situations that later on when I was in grad school, they didn't have, they didn't teach us on. <laughs> and I, I, I tell people who want to be counselors, like, you know, once you get your bachelor's, go work somewhere, community mental health, get your feet wet and get some experience because when you're ready to go to grad school, you will be so prepared. (laughs) And, you know, I I wish they had done more to, I I think with grad school, sometimes they focus so much on the theories of the, the field that they don't do, they don't spend enough time on the practical application Application. Mm -hmm. and what it looks like to actually do this work. I agree. I was thinking the same thing in my head, actually, <laughs> like how it can be so theory based, which is important. Of course, we have to know, know those things. But I agree. I wish, you know, we did dive into the practicalities. Although I will say for myself, things look so different in the classroom than they do. Like, even if I had learned it, I don't know how much that would have mm-hmm. <laughs> helped me. Maybe it would have been good to just talk about it. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. feeling super alone or foreign or scary. But uh, I, I do wish we talked yeah. about this more. Yeah. And one reason why I just wanted to talk about this topic is because I think just talking about it <laughs> helps. <laughs> I, I never heard any kind of training or anything about how to deal with when your client is attracted to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you handle it? It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Absolutely. So what would so, you say then? Oh, sorry, Catherine. Was that what you were going to ask? <laughs> I was going to say the same question. Yeah. The same so question. perfect segue into what would you say to someone dealing with this for the first time? What advice would you give them? 
well, good luck. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Welcome I to would, the club. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would tell them, hey, you know what? This happens. Um, this happens, especially uh, you know if the, the student's a woman, it's it's going to happen if she interacts with with well, not not just men. It's going to happen in general. I mean, it happened to me, <laughs> and and so you know, try not to freak out. <laughs> Um, you're going to freak out on the inside. That's okay. Try to not show it in your face <laughs> or body language. And then, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, try to get yourself out of that situation if you can. You know, you prioritize your, uh, your, your safety and your level of comfort, I think, is what I would tell them. Because I think because of our profession, we are geared towards accommodating our clients. And so we prioritize mm-hmm. their needs and their level of comfort over our own. And I think this is one of those situations when um, it's appropriate to prioritize my needs and my level of comfort. Um, And so I I would say something like that to them. And I would definitely encourage them to talk to their supervisor about or to consult with their colleagues. That way they can learn how other people handle those situations um, because that helps a lot. I also would have to add on there that and and learn more about their own discomfort, right? Yes. That if safety's there, um, what is your discomfort about? How can you use that discomfort clinically in your clinical mm-hmm. work, right? Yes. Um, I go back to your situation with the with the client who saw you as a best friend. What does that say about their clinical presentation and potential treatment goals, right? How can mm-hmm. you use that info to inform your work if you are safe and comfortable doing so, obviously? Um, but absolutely, that peer support and supervisor support is that's how you learn about these things, right? It, it, talking about it is is how you learn. Yeah. I agree. And I think, too, when I was in that situation, it made me reflect on why I felt so uncomfortable. (laughs) And so I like what you said, Catherine, just like reflecting on it. Because, I mean, I did reflect on it. And that's when I realized, you know, I've never been hit on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is what it must feel like for women every Mm -hmm. single day, Mm -hmm. walking down the street. And it made me so much more empathetic for my coworkers it made me so much more, um, not, like, not that I needed to come to their defense, but like I, I was more on their side. I was I, I advocated for those kind of things because when I worked at that agency, I was there for th- about three and a half, four years, and there was a shift in how they did things. And later on in my term, they started to prioritize um, clinicians' safety and their needs and their comfort more way more than when I first started working there. And I'm glad they did <laughs> because I'm the, the, this kind of work is hard <laughs> and people burn out if they don't feel comfortable. I mean, they, they don't want to put themselves in, un, in compromising situations. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing that you got to see that transformation mm-hmm. too and that your experiences were able to, to shift the environment and the prioritization. And hopefully it continues to shift because I think that this does, like we're saying, it does happen. And even for like if a client happens to stumble upon this podcast and you're listening to this, like it's natural. Like our clients mm-hmm. are revealing some parts of themselves to us that maybe they never have to anyone before. It's a very like vulnerable relationship. So it would mm-hmm. make sense that you might feel attracted to your provider, mm-hmm. clinician, things like that. And that happens 
but we just have to discuss it, set the boundaries yep. and recognize it. So hopefully clients, again, if they happen to hear this, just can also feel validated. Like, yes, that can happen. Yes. If you're feeling that way, that's normal. It makes so much sense, but we just have to bring it back to why are we feeling this way? What is the foundation of the relationship and how can we move forward from it? Or is it impacting the therapeutic relationship too much? So hopefully mm -hmm. just as agencies, you know, continue to hopefully grow and set, you know, these policies and things into place, we can just, again, normalize it so that clients feel heard and seen, but we do as clinicians too. Beautifully yeah. put. Yes, I agree. Awesome. Thank, well, you, John, yes, so thank you, John, so much for joining us. Well, thank um, you for having me. And if John, if anyone wants to connect with you outside of the podcast, where can they find you if you'd like to share? Sure. I have a website. It's uh, therapywithjohn.com. Such a good website. <laughs> Great domain. A really know, good one. Nice and simple. Um, I couldn't get the Instagram handle for that, though. So someone else had that. So I had to come up with a, a different one. My Instagram is paha, P-A-J-A -A dot the dot therapist. So paha dot the dot therapist. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us today, talking about this topic that's not easy to talk about it. We appreciate you and thank you again. Well, thanks for having me. And that's it. The OG Bad Therapists, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. And are you a bad therapist and want to join us on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song along with many others on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air4Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists. <laughs>